Welcome to the, uh, as Pragash has already done, our first Sunday worship of 2024. Hope everyone had a good time with the holidays. Uh, thanks to the folks that uh, covered things last Sunday and for the folks that organized our uh, New Year's uh, little service and also the 26. I know Pragash was a big part of that. I took that week between Christmas and New Year's off, and it was wonderfully unproductive. So, uh, so it's great. Uh, but time to get back in the saddle, and we are going to be getting back into the book of Galatians, where we had uh, left off before the Advent season. Uh, if you'd like to follow along in the, your Bibles, we are going to be beginning chapter 3 uh, this week. But uh, as a quick reminder... The church, uh, the letter to the churches of Galatia, it's not really to one single church. It's a region of churches that were in modern day Turkey. It'd be kind of the south central part of Turkey. Uh, it's a little bit of a different type of feel because it's not particularly to one particular church like you have in First and Second Corinthians or you have in the, in the book of Philippians. It's more to a group, but there seems to be some issues going on within this group of churches in Galatia. And the issue is centered around that the, the dance between works and faith. You know, how do, we, how do we express our faith through our works and, and not get caught up in trying to justify our faith or earn our faith through our works? And it's this kind of nuanced, uh, like I say, it's kind of a dance that goes back and forth. And it's been, in my opinion, it's one of the things that Christians have dealt with in the past and continue to deal with. And the scripture makes it clear that we cannot earn our salvation through self-improvement or, or doing enough good that God somehow becomes indebted to us and therefore owes us salvation. But we also know that our faith is to be characterized by a certain goodness, a good works is part of it. And so is it fair to say that there are certain works which are critically necessary in order for our faith to be considered genuine? It's questions like that which have been part of Christianity from the very beginning. And if you've been in a church, a Bible teaching church for any amount of time, if you've been here, if you've been other places, you know that this is something that gets talked about all the time. And it seems to be, you know, brought up again and again. And it's because it's brought up again and again in the scriptures, especially the New Testament. The Apostle Paul talks about this very issue again and again. James talks about it again and again. And the reason why it's brought up is it's our human nature to want to try and earn something. Because if we earn it, then we feel like it's more like it's ours and no one can take it away from us. You know, if someone gives me, uh, gives you something like gives you uh, a car. Let's just think big. And, uh, and they give that to you. you, there's kind of this, in the back of your mind, the sense that they could get angry with you and take it back. But if you earn it, you bought it with your own money, it is yours, and no one can take it away, it's yours. That's kind of how we sometimes approach faith. We don't mean to, but we do because this is kind of baked within us. It's part of our DNA that, that we want to, if we feel like we've earned it, then it becomes more securely ours. And so throughout history, there's been this tension between works and faith, and you see it in the scriptures. Uh, there's some wonderful verses which are really kind of, it, it perfectly expresses the tension that you have in this. For example, Ephesians chapter 2, 
uh, verses 8 through 10, it says this. More often we quote 8 and 9. It says, For it is by grace you've been saved through faith. And this not of yourself, it is the gift of God. Not by works, so that no one can boast. And we generally stop there. But verse 10 brings in the tension. For we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. And so you can see in how these, these verses kind of play off of each other. That It's not just saying you're saved by grace, therefore it doesn't matter what you do, be it nothing or actually just continue to indulge yourself in sin, which has been you know, a, a teaching that some Christians have taught over the year. I don't know if you'd say they're Christians, but that because we're saved by grace, we can sin all we want. And actually the Bible's like, no. But you can see people have gotten all messed up with this. James... Uh, it says this, what good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such a faith save him? So James is like, if you're claiming Jesus, but there's no evidence of Jesus in your life, do you really follow Jesus? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is that? At the same, in the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. So someone will say, well, you have faith, I have deeds. You know, he's, he's, then he's kind of going to the other extreme here. Some of you are saying, well, I'm just going to do stuff. You can believe I'm going to do to earn it. And, and James is like, no, that's not the way either. Show me your faith without deeds. I will show you my faith by what I do. In other words, my faith impacts how I live. I adjust my life to God. And so, so that we can move on through this passage, and I think most of you already know this, the answer to this whole thing is we express our belief or faith in this beginning stage of faith by believing that Jesus Christ died for our sins, that he rose again on the third day as the victor over sin and death. And in doing that, he proved himself as the authority over the power of sin and death. And this is the first stage. It's just believing. Do you believe that this happened? And if you look in the book of Acts, we've been going through the book of Acts, and we'll start again this Thursday in our little journey through the book of Acts. You see in the early chapters that the emphasis that the apostles' message was simply as a witness of saying, this is what we saw. We saw Christ crucified. We saw Christ buried. And we saw Christ raised from the dead. We are witnesses to this. If you read in the book of Acts, there's history around these proclamations of witness, but there's not a lot of theology. There's not a, anything mentioned about being chosen or predestined or free will or pre-tribulation or mid-tribulation, all the things that we, we argue about as Christians. There's nothing in that. It's just witness. Here's some examples. Acts chapter 2, verse 32, after talking about the history leading up to Jesus Christ, this is the statement, God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses to the fact. So that's their emphasis. We saw this. Regardless of the theology around it, we saw this. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. We are all witnesses to this. This is the first stage of belief. Do you believe this happened? Do you believe in the witness? Do you believe the witness of the apostles? Or do you deny it? Do you say that what the apostles shared was a lie? 
And the fact that almost all of them died, we think except for John, all of them died because they refused to step back from this belief that they saw this. Do you just think that's something to disregard altogether? And it's believing them, believing that this event took place, that the crucifixion of Christ took place, the burial of Christ took place, the resurrection of Christ took place. That's what John's talking about when he says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. It's that first step of faith, is believing. And I remember in my early faith, this place of simple belief was like a place to breathe. It was a place where my soul could relax in Christ, and I could trust God. And I remember, I had been to church a lot. I'd been to church ever since I was about in the seventh grade up through my high school years. I had heard the gospel message often. I had been around Christians a lot, but I did not really believe it. I believed it up here, but I didn't, I didn't want my life to be adjusted to it. I didn't really want to have to uh, be accountable for that belief. And so I would say that that was a place of unbelief. Even though it was up here, my life hadn't adjusted to that at all. But when I decided... And you can get into, we can get into the back and forth. Did you decide? Did God decide for you? That's not even a question in the scripture. When I came to the place of belief and really leaned upon the truth of Christ that I could trust him, it felt like my soul began to breathe. And man, I experienced a kind of joy that I'd never experienced before. But it wasn't too long that after that I began thinking, well, what now? What am I supposed to do? Am I supposed to go to church? I had grown up. Not really grown up, but I had had a, uh, you know, for several years, this experience that church was very closely connected to faith. So, yeah, I, I continued to go to church. Uh, what else was it? What now? What else? Well, at the time, I was in a Southern Baptist church in the U.S., and uh, they kind of had a rules. They would say, we're saved by grace, but here are the rules. And I, and I love my Southern Baptist roots. I'm not saying this in, in kind of derogatory way, but the rules were don't drink anything alcoholic, period, end of story. Don't dance, for some reason. I'm not quite sure why. Uh, if you get to the old school Southern Baptist from the South, don't play cards because the pictures were idolatry, so they would play dominoes, but they wouldn't play cards. And, uh, and, you know, don't, don't go, and if you got really into it, you know, don't work at all on Sundays, unless you're a pastor, apparently. But uh, they had these, these kind of rules you followed that sort of expressed your seriousness about your faith, I guess. Yeah, I didn't really question it at the time. I was like, well, I'm just going to do what, what that says. I found over the years that different church cultures and different country cultures, we all kind of express ourselves in the, well, this is what you should do if you're really serious. I think, you know, if you come from uh, church cultures from uh, India or Sri Lanka or from Africa, the African nations, you know, Kenya, Ghana, whatever, sometimes you'll find that within these cultures, just like the Southern Baptists had their kind of rules, don't drink, don't dance, don't play cards, don't work on Sundays, uh, that a lot of folks have these rules. And, and if you're not part of it, you're like, why that rule? Like, what's the deal about playing cards? You know, what's the, what's the story about not dancing? Does it mean you can't polka? Or does it mean you're not supposed to, you know, shake in a certain way? What are we talking about here? But we have a tendency to do this. This is, this is our tendency as human beings. We want to kind of set parameters around faith so that we feel like we're doing a good job, that we feel like somehow we are justifying our faith through our deeds. And have you ever, have you ever experienced anything like that, or am I just up here, you know, talking? 
I'm glad. Okay, good. <laughs> the Galatians definitely experienced this. They believed the Apostle Paul when he told them about Jesus Christ. They believed that Jesus was the victor over sin and death. They had repented of their sins, and they had sought to be in a relationship with God through the presence of the Holy Spirit, and they had experienced the presence of the Holy Spirit among them. But then some folks came along, and Paul says that they came from James, James being the half-brother of Christ. He was the leader of the church in Jerusalem. And one of the issues of that church coming out of Jerusalem, and one of the reasons why Martin Luther doesn't particularly like the, the letter of James, is because it does seem to very much kind of emphasize the idea of works being necessary to faith, because in a sense they are. We are God's workership created for good works in Christ. The confusion is, do the works lead us to faith, or does faith lead us to the works? And also from the, coming from James, and I don't know if you can interpret that as Paul saying this is what James taught, or they were just coming from that, that church. They were telling the people in Galatia that in order to be truly in Christ, you had to submit to the law of Moses and follow the law of Moses and believe Jesus was your Messiah. And for the men who weren't Jews, this meant they had to become circumcised. And this is the issue, and this is why circumcision is mentioned over and over again. It's not that being circumcised in and of itself is an is a, a evil thing. But if, if you believe this is necessary to be saved, then you're adding something to your faith other than Christ. And so this belief started to spread among the churches in the area of Galatia. And this is, this is what Paul is dealing with. And at the point of the letter, we're going to get into it. After Paul does the initial greetings, after he lays out the problem as he sees it, after he talks about a very public dispute that he had had with Peter, the chief apostle, over whether or not he was willing to associate with people who were no, not Jews, but they were Gentiles, Paul hits hard at the Galatians, and he stays intense through the rest of the letter at this point. And he dives right in. He says, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. So what he's saying here is like, you guys, what's your problem? And, and the word foolish is, I find it interesting. The Bible often tries to take the edge off of some of the things that Paul says. It tries to take the edge off of some of the things that the prophets say, because what they say sounds pretty harsh. And what he actually says here is, you stupid Galatians. Not you're just foolish. You're stupid. I, wanted, I looked up this, uh, when I was studying for this, I was looking up the word, just to make sure this wasn't just some anecdotal thing. And the word in the Greek is anotoi. And this is, how, this is, this is the, the sentence out of the commentary trying to nicey up this word. It goes, anotoi denotes either an insufficient or mistaken use of mental powers or a deficiency of understanding itself. In other words, stupid. And then the Apostle Paul, then he throws, well, maybe you're under a spell. Maybe someone has bewitched you. Now, personally, I don't think Paul literally believed that the people in Galatia were stupid. I don't think he believed they were under a spell. But he is so distressed at the direction that their faith is taking that he is deliberately provocative in order to wake them up, to make them realize, wow, we should probably pay attention to this. 
And then he immediately brings them back to the foundational part of their faith. He brings them back to the witness of the apostles. Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. He died for your sins. He did it. You don't need to help him. You didn't help him on the cross. You didn't do anything good for it. He died for your sins. While you were still sinners, Christ died for you. And then he asked them a series of kind of rhetorical questions about their experience. He goes, I would like to know just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by observing the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish? After beginning with the Spirit, are you now trying to attain your goal by human effort? Have you suffered so much for nothing if it really was for nothing? Actually, verse 4 could also, it talks about intense experience, really. So it could also be, have you not experienced this intense thing for nothing, if it really was for nothing? Does God give you his spirit and work miracles among you because you observe the law? Or because you believe what you heard? So just for the sake of clarity, because sometimes, you know, for many folks, English isn't their first language. And, and there's been times that, that I, I know this because people have asked me about it. Sometimes when the Bible is being sarcastic or when there's a rhetorical question here, people kind of don't understand what, what the answer of that is supposed to be. And I totally get that, man. I'm a total one language speaker. I, ex I, I admire you guys. Most of you are at least two or three. But let's just go through this. Did you receive the spirit by observing the law or by believing what you heard? They received the Spirit by believing what they heard, not by observing the law. Most, a lot of these folks in Galatia weren't Jewish, so they hadn't observed the law, and yet they felt the power of the Holy Spirit among them. It is because they believed what they heard. Are you so foolish? Well, apparently. Then he says, after beginning with the Spirit, are you now trying to attain your goal by human effort? In other words, now that the Spirit of God is among you, do you think that you can somehow do something to bring the Spirit of God among you? Now that the Spirit of God is among you, what can you do to add to it? You can't add to it. The Spirit of God is among you. There's nothing more you can do to make the Spirit more present except be in relationship and have faith in that Spirit and walk close with Him, but it's not doing stuff. You can't seduce the Holy Spirit by your goodness to come and be closer with you. By your good works, I should say. And then he says, and so the answer to them, they're like, yeah, we are trying to earn it, I guess. And that's what he's worried about. He goes, have you, because it's taking their focus off the source and they're looking somewhere else. Have you had such intense experiences or have you suffered for nothing? He wants the answer to be no. We had this presence of the Spirit. We felt his presence, the intensity of it. We've even been willing to suffer for it, and it's not for nothing. We're acting like it maybe, but it's not. And then he says, does God give you his spirit and work miracles among you because you observe the law or because you believe in what you heard? And he comes back to, it's because we believed what we heard. And then the apostle Paul goes to his favorite go-to guy in the Old Testament. 
And he goes to the same character in the book of Romans, and he, does this, he uses them for the same reason. He uses this person as an example of someone who is declared righteous outside of the law of Moses, and someone who is declared righteous before Judaism had become really Judaism. And that's Abraham. And for those of you who don't know, Abraham lived... He's a character you find in the Old Testament, in the book of Genesis. He has a big part in it. And he lived before the law of Moses had been put into place. So he couldn't be made righteous through following the law of Moses because he lived before the law of Moses was even in place. And he lived before Judaism was an established you know, faith as Judaism. You didn't have Judaism uh, at the time of Abraham. All you had with Abraham is you had a man who had a relationship with God and who believed God when God spoke into his life and who adjusted his life to the revealed truth of God. And so he says in verse 6, Consider Abraham. He believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Understand then that those who believe are children of Abraham. Now this is a big deal, this idea of being children of Abraham, because in the time of Christ, the Jews, Jewish people would often refer back to Abraham as their seminal, as their you know, progenitor of faith, the first father of their faith. And they were very proud of this. Uh, you see Jesus go back and forth with the, the people in the temple. And remember, we've got to be careful that Jesus was Jewish. All the apostles were Jewish. We're not, this isn't an anti-Jewish thing, but Jesus is saying, you need to understand this the way it was intended to be understood. And so Jesus is talking to them one time in the temple, and he says, I know you're Abraham's descendants, yet you are ready to kill me because you have no room for my word. In other words, you know, Abraham, in his life, he is, li he is declared righteous because he has room for God's word in his life. God tells Abraham, if you don't know the story, that you are going to be the father of many nations. And even though Abraham had no male heir, naturally, you know, biological male heir at the time, he believed God. And adjusted his life to believing God. And because he believed God, he is declared righteous. And so that's what he's saying. Yet you say you're Abraham's descendants, yet you're ready to kill me because you have no room for my word. In other words, you're not, you don't have room to adjust to the revealed truth of God through me. I'm telling you what I have seen in my father's presence. This is kind of like that witness. I'm telling you what I've seen. Do you believe what I'm telling you I've seen? And they didn't. He says, and you do what you've heard from your father. And now they get ticked off at this. They're going, wait, wait a minute. Our father is Abraham. And Jesus says, if you were Abraham's children, then you would do the things Abraham did. Again, this kind of faith and works thing kind of dancing together. What did Abraham do? He believed. And then in that belief, adjusted his life to trusting God. He didn't try and do a bunch of works to please this God. He didn't know. He just listened to the, that God who called him from his home to go move. He listened to him. He believed what God said about his life and adjusted his life. And so, back in Galatians, this is the Apostle Paul continues with this. He says, The scriptures foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith. Gentiles are non-Jewish people. He would justify the Gentiles by faith and announced the gospel in advance to Abraham all nations will be blessed through you. 
so that those who have faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So in a sense, this is why Christians can also say Abraham is our progenitor. Abraham is our spiritual father because Abraham didn't have a law to follow. Abraham only had trusting and believing in God to follow. All who rely on observing the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Clearly, no one is justified before God by the law because the righteous will live by faith. The law is not based on faith. On the contrary, the man who does these things will live by them. We're going to go through and explain some of these. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, as it is written. Cursed is everyone who's hung on a tree. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus, so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Holy Spirit. So in a nutshell, what is he saying? Well, this gets fleshed out in the other letters of Paul, most most, uh, in-depth in the book of Romans, if you want to read that. But the law of Moses is not evil. It comes from God. It's not evil. But the law of Moses does not make us any better as a people because it cannot heal the broken relationship between ourselves and God. The main function that the law of Moses does is that it shows us that we are unable to live this law 100%. We are simply unable to do it. And if you do not live the law 100%, then you are a lawbreaker. And if you are a lawbreaker, then you cannot be in perfect union with a holy God because you are a lawbreaker. And no matter how hard you try and perfectly live this law of Moses, if at any point in your youth, in your young adult years, in your mid-adult years, in your old age, if at any point you break that law on purpose or by accident, you are a lawbreaker. And if you are a lawbreaker, you are not perfectly righteous. If you're not perfectly righteous, then you cannot dwell in the presence of a perfectly holy God forever. So what are you going to do? And that's why he says, all who rely on observing the law are under a curse. It's not that the law itself is evil, but it reveals the fact that you are a lawbreaker. And for it is written, curses is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of law. It sets us up, though, for realizing we need something greater. We need something greater than the law. And what could be greater than the law? given to Moses by God. What could be greater? Well, it's God himself. And that's the incarnation. That's the word becoming flesh and dwelling among us, Jesus Christ. And just as Abraham was considered righteous because he believed what God said about his life situation was true and adjusted his life situation to the revealed truth of God in his life, he becomes the father of many nations and the example of someone who's considered righteous Who's not under the law of Moses? That's why he uses them. Why Paul uses them as an example. And then he says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming the curse for us. We see this in a lot of scriptures that Paul writes. You know, he who knew no sin became sin for us. Um, For God, you know, God loved us so much that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You see this written over and over again. He takes upon himself as a perfect representation of the human race, takes upon himself, The sin 
of all of humanity as a perfect representation. He's that perfect sacrifice, the lamb without blemish. And he becomes that sin for us, which is a pattern you see in the Old Testament being used all the time by the, the in Yom Kippur, for example, the Day of Atonement with the Jews. They would have a, a goat and they would lay their hands upon the goat and then it's symbolically the, the sins of the nation for that year went on to that goat and then one was sacrificed, one was let go free. And this is what Jesus is representing. He's the, he's the climax of this, that as a perfect representation, he takes the punishment of humanity. He who knew no sin became sin for us. So that by putting our faith in him, we can live. He's kind of, the Old Testament, and we're going to talk about this when we, uh, after we go through the book of Galatians, we're going to talk about this a little bit in different ways. But the Old Testament has all these different pictures and stories, which then Christ models. So like in the book about Noah, you know, Noah, the world is destroyed. Everyone's killed. The only ones that live are those who find their safety within an ark, which is by God's design. He designs the ark. It's not Noah's design. It's God's design. In fact, the scripture makes it clear. God even closes the door at the end. He's like, he closes the door for them. In that same way, you know, we are all under the curse of sin, but there's a designed way to survive that, survive that wrath. That is finding yourself in Christ, trusting in what he has done. Because the law won't save us. Doing good won't save us. We can't do enough to hold back the tide of wrath that's upon us as a collective people, as a human species, as well as individuals. But because God loved us and continues to love us, he finds a way. The word becomes flesh. He took upon himself the wrath that was meant for us. And in his wholeness, he is able to carry our sin. And his resurrection proves that he is exactly what he said he was. He is the victor over sin and death. He is vindicated by the resurrection. And now we can live differently by trusting him and trusting what he has done. And we adjust our life to him. We adjust it through acknowledging our sin. We adjust it through repentance of our sin. We adjust it by putting our faith in him, asking the Holy Spirit to dwell with us, to begin to walk differently. And as we walk differently, as we become good, then the goodness of who we become as we become more like Christ is expressed in our actions and in what we do. And you might say, well, what should that look like? Does, what does it look like? And this is where we fall into rules. Well, it looks like don't dance. It looks like don't work on Sunday. It looks like, you know, don't go to movies. Or does it look like what the scripture said it should look like? I think it should look like love. It should look like joy. It should look like peace and patience and kindness goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Because against these things, there is no law. And when we truly believe and we are influenced by the Holy Spirit, then it's not about us trying to do good. It's about us being good. One time, Jesus is called good teacher. And if you remember that story, he kind of fires back at the guy and goes, why do you call me good? Only God is good. He's trying to make a point with the guy. That, yeah, you're right. I am good. But only God is truly good. So what's that say about me? And of course, the guy doesn't really get it that, uh, that he's talking to. But that's what Jesus is trying to get across. 
And the only goodness really in us that has any kind of effect on eternity is our goodness that comes through our relationship with the ultimate good, which is the Holy Spirit of God. And so we continue to be in relationship with him. Our life gets reformed. And this is why it's important. The world makes fun of some of the phrases of Christianity. The world makes fun of born again, for example. Oh, you're one of those born againers. The reason why the scripture emphasizes being born again is because in Christ we are reformed. It's like this it's like we're made out of clay and this thing is just going the wrong direction. So it's crushed down, but then it's rebuilt. We die to self and then it's rebuilt in the way that God wants it to be rebuilt. And that's why we're considered born again. That's what it means. You're a new creation in Christ. The old is gone. The new has come. By your trust in him, he will take your life. You will die to self. And that's, what the, the, that's the whole thing with baptism, death to self, life to Christ, to be created in the image of Christ. And that's our life journey. Because we still fight with our old self. We still fight with sin. We're still in a world that's fallen. We're still, we're given the credit of righteousness. But underneath that credit, there's still a lot of work that needs to be done. And it's not going to be made fully, fully into the place of holiness until we're in the presence of God. Either by his return or by our death. But this is what it talks about when it says, you've been saved by grace through faith. This is not of yourself. It's the gift of God. Not by works so that no one can boast. However, we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So, I know for most of you, you've heard this all before. And I hope you have. I hope this isn't news. Uh, especially looking at those of you who have been around for a while, I'd be kind of discouraged. You said, wow, I've never heard this before. It's like, what? You hear it all the time, because the scripture talks about it all the time. But do you live it? Do you trust it? Or in the back of your mind, are you still kind of relying on, well, I'm going to do good. Hopefully that will get me in. Where is your trust, really? I know for me, I have to remind myself, I'm not going to heaven because I'm a pastor. I'm, maybe I'm going to heaven in spite of the fact I'm a pastor. I don't know. But I'm going because of who Christ is and what he has done. And that's the same for everybody. We need to keep our eyes in the right place. The Galatians got distracted. It's easy to get distracted. We have entire church empires out there that don't look to faith in Christ. They look into faith in rituals. Faith in praying to people other than Christ. It's not going to get you where you want to go. Keep your eyes on Christ. It's not about what you do. It's about who you know. And if you know the right person the right way, then what you do is going to please him. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for the way that your word talks about these things over and over again because they are the things we struggle with as human beings, over and over again. Just like some of us have, you know, that, those things in our life, which are those sins or those places in our life that we want to get out of our life, but we keep going back to them. They, we just hang on for whatever reason. This idea of trying to earn our faith, it's just something that, if it's not just right in front of us, like we say, oh, yeah, sure, we know we're saved by grace, we still tend to try and put rules around. Don't drink, don't dance. Lord, help us to just trust you, know you, follow you, to have your spirit so change who we are that it doesn't have to be about keeping rules. It just has to be about 
following who you've made us to be as children of God, made alive again in Christ with our eyes upon who he is, empowered by his spirit. We thank you and we praise you for making this pretty easy. And God, forgive us for the ways we try and make it complicated. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.